Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Brian and I discuss the process of applying for faculty positions. I know there's a lot of content in this, but I hope it helps you to avoid some of the mistakes that we made when we were going through this process. Hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to Prophet's Error. It's great to have everyone back. Today we are talking about a topic that, um, you know, I'm happy to say I'm, I've sort of moved past um, in terms of my career, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, which is to say uh, surviving the interview for a faculty position. So if you've listened thus far or you're just discovering this podcast now and for some reason you want to pursue an academic career, um, Brian Franz and I are going to try to tell you some lessons we've learned, maybe things we've done well and not so well as we were targeting uh, faculty positions. So we're probably going to have a couple of uh, segments and we're going to try to align these upcoming episodes uh, with the different, I guess, segments of the interview process. Um, so, so Brian, what are we talking about in this first one today? What's our, what's our aim for today? So I think we want to cover the search uh, for um, advertisements related to academic positions and then the preparation for how, what you would do to actually respond to uh, that call uh, as part of your application. So what are you actually putting together? Um, and then I think Nick will t- probably take that up to the the point where you might get shortlisted for uh, a phone interview yeah, that and sense. that might be enough, right? And then in future um, talks, we'll, we'll cover the phone interview and, and maybe the job site or the um, rather um, site interview site, yeah. at the university. Yeah. Did you find when you were doing this that it just felt like you had no idea what to expect? I mean, I, I know when I went into it, I was thinking, oh, job application. Yeah, I, I get that. I've, I've done those before. I know what this is. And I kind of found myself saying or saying when I saw what the requirements were for a lot of academic positions of, oh, my gosh, this is so much more work than a typical job application. Um, and I, I found I was a bit surprised. And I'm talking in my first couple. After a while, you get used to it. But did you have that feel when you were starting up? Yeah, I mean, it's something that you've never really done before, right? Like, yeah. so as a graduate student, you've never gone through it. it. It's a real process. And from an outsider's perspective, it can really feel like a a black box, right? Like you're just, you have, you're inputting information and then things are happening and then you're maybe getting contacted, maybe not. Uh, but it's, it's very different from uh, just a, finding a job in industry where you submit your resume and it's like a one page or two pager and, you know, they call you and you do an interview and, and that's that, right? Well, um, also, yeah, I mean, you're right. It also feels, though, like it's kind of a very specific type of audience. Like an in industry, you could be going to the person who will become your project manager and he or she may hire you. You could be going to a general human resources person. You mm-hmm. could be going to a company that all they do is recruiting and they don't even work for the company you're applying to. Like, I guess my point is it seems like in industry, it's a lot more uncertainty as to who you're targeting. I feel like in academia, it's a pretty specific type of audience. And so crafting that content, I definitely know I, I was not effective at that initially. So I'm yeah. happy to share some of the lessons learned in that process. I mean, I think it's a specific audience, but I think every department is pretty diverse. And there's sort of, there's politics going on that you may or may not be aware of. Yeah, there's that's true. Diff- so there's a lot, I mean, I think even though that the audience is sort of, it's specific to maybe your research area 
and it's applying to other academics who are going to be reviewing your package rather than someone in HR, um, it can be a diverse set of, of folks that you have to speak to. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is, it, it can be challenging to navigate it, like to walk that fine line between, you know, not inadvertently siding with someone in that department and stepping into politics that you don't mean to versus, you know, selling what, what it is that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great points. I, I don't have a lot of insights on that specific topic, but uh, maybe you've got some, some fun yeah, experiences can you can share. So, so why don't, why don't we kind of talk through the process here and let, let's mm-hmm. maybe walk someone through what they can expect if, if, uh, you know, maybe they're starting up grad school and I don't know, I'll, I'll at least admit on my end for a lot of grad school, I really wasn't sure if I wanted to be an academic or not. I, I kind of still had, you know, these dreams I was nurturing of uh, owning my own company and doing that for a living. So, um, what what goes on in the process in terms of like maybe you can talk how have you generally seen academic positions advertised how do you find out about positions even well first of all to correct one thing i always knew that you were going to go into academia <laughs> the the whole will he won't he thing with industry and academia i knew that that was never going to pan out you didn't think i had the entrepreneurial side or something no <laughs> no the day i met you i'm like okay yeah, this guy's going to go into academia nerd uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's what I, yeah. I mean, from the day I met you, literally. Um, but yeah, so the process. So how do you go about looking for jobs? So I think timing is is big. So typically like end of August, um, early September is when uh, search committees will start to be formed and they'll be putting together a, uh, a call for a, a faculty position, mm-hmm. right, if there's one available. And uh, those calls then, you know, they, it, they're created by committee. So this is where I think the politics comes in a little bit in, in how they're created and the topics that are chosen to be highlighted um, in the call. Uh, but then once that's all decided, those calls get published uh, or posted both at the university, uh, university's website, but also a bunch of sort of external sources. So, I mean, I, I always searched for like higher ed jobs. That's a... Uh, website that aggregates a lot of um, uh, faculty positions mm-hmm. and then ASCE that's unique to our field yep. the American Society of Civil Engineers um, maintains a, a job application portal uh, that has you know, dissertation or doctoral um, requirements that allow you to filter and, and find faculty positions um, but th- that's where I would start right and and, and likely if someone's right yeah, if someone's from another field, like chances are there's some version right. of that kind of thing in their domain. Right. But the other thing you said there that I think might be important to mention if someone's listening, because I, I, I'll admit I didn't know this, um, you know, for students that are currently in the PhD process now, um, there is sometimes flexibility, and this depends on your situation, in terms of when you would look to defend and subsequently graduate. Um, and what I think you said, Brian, is really important in that there is kind of a season to hiring, right? Positions are generally uh, going to be uh, discussed, approved in sort of August, September, announced in September, October, you know, searches go October, November, December, sometimes January, Mm -hmm. you know, phone interviews, November, December, January, February, in person, January, February, March. The point being, if you find yourself saying, oh, I know I want to go academia and I'm planning to graduate in um, December, you can do that, but that may be a tougher road because for a lot of positions, they will want you to have a PhD um, done by the time you start. 
and there aren't a ton, I'm not going to say zero because there are some, but there's, there's not a ton of positions that would have a start date in January. A lot of them tend to start in August. Now, some universities will be flexible, you know, and if they really like the candidate, they'll move the start date. And so take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, but, but I'm only bringing this up to say if you find yourself in a spot where you have some flexibility on, you know, targeted end dates, having a May or even an August end date um, can afford you maybe more um, opportunities that will align with that timing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're mentioning ways in which the academic job search is different from industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it, right? It's the industry you can put in your resume, get an interview, get a job within, you know, a few weeks or a month. Yeah. The academic job search, as Steve just said, goes from August or September all the way to March or April of the next year. So it is a process. Uh, And so you have to really think through it in terms of when you're graduating and and when you're applying, Um, because you can be kind of off cycle. And if you're off cycle, as Steve mentioned, there may not be easy opportunities for you. And and you may be looking for something like a postdoc to fill a semester. Mm -hmm. Which is... and. Yeah, and that's certainly an option a lot of people like and appreciate, and it can be a good way of getting some additional publication and research mm-hmm. experience. So if that aligns with your interest, that's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just I bring it up because I think that you know may impact some people's timing. So you find these different advertisements through um, the websites you've got, or the the listservs you may be on, or mm-hmm. colleagues that you may have, um, whatever the source may be. In terms of what is listed in there. I find there is some uh, variety of the types of things that are mentioned, but there's also a lot of consistency. In terms of the consistency, most positions I have seen for faculty uh, positions, especially if we're talking tenure, tenure track positions that expect some level of research, will want a cover letter, uh, a statement of research interests, a teaching statement, Uh, Some will include other documents. You'll sometimes hear about um, statements on either innovation or uh, inclusion or related to specific topics of interest there. Uh, Typically, you'll have references that you need to provide. uh, And then probably the most standard thing you can expect to see is is a CV, right? That's going to show up on pretty much all of them. I found that these documents, especially creating them initially, took way, way, way more time (laughs) than I expected. I kind of thought, oh, these are, you know, what, a page or two a piece? Okay, no problem. I can knock that out in an hour. Mm -hmm. But it is not about how fast can you fill the page. I feel like the content you submit for these are so critical Mm -hmm. um, and just take way longer than than one might expect. And I also tend to think to do them well, it requires a lot of homework on the universities. So those are kind of the things that I would describe as standard and, and most of the the applications or the most of the uh, calls for positions that I see some of the differences that I will see is sometimes you'll see faculty positions where they will specifically state they are seeking um, an associate or full professor and if you're a PhD student okay that's not going to be you likely so so maybe that's not the best fit for you Um, and and sometimes they'll be specific on what they're targeting. Other times there will be hiring related to a specific center that a new university may have. And so they may want someone who's in a pretty focused area. Other times you will see just the opposite. And you'll see calls that say, um, you know, in our sort of construction civil engineering domain, we'll see something like, we want someone who studies new and emerging technologies or any other emerging topic area. Well, that's a you know that's a pretty broad catch-all at that point. Um, so the the point being, in a lot of the calls, they may have some sense of what they're looking for, 
but even if your research doesn't fall directly there, if, if you wow them, for lack of a better word, um, that may still be an option. So I guess the, the scope or the focus of these can, can vary a lot. Any other things you've noticed, Brian, in terms of either typical things you've seen or areas where they're highly divergent? Yeah, so I'll, I'll come back to the, the description of, of what they want, um, because that, I mean, that's where when I reference politics, I think that's where some of the departmental politics mm. can come into play. And from a new faculty's perspective or from a, um, a PhD that's, that's looking for a faculty position, um, you know, trying to interpret what's really written there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, can take some time, right? It's kind of like reading tea leaves. You see these like, you know, list of topics. And as you say, they're kind of random. And so if they look really random, that probably represents that there's some sort of departmental politics going on Mm -hmm. where they couldn't really decide on what the specific research area was that they wanted. So they just sort of listed both. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you may be a good fit in one of them. You may be a good fit in another um, but ultimately, I mean, what most departments are looking for is a good candidate. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yes, these are maybe their preferred research areas, but if you're a great candidate and you do sort of tangential work to what specifically what they're asking for, I, I don't think that's a negative. Like, I think you shouldn't just write off that, that advertisement and say, okay, this, this position isn't for me, yeah. um, because of that. So I think you really need to look at what they're saying, but then try to read between the lines a little bit mm-hmm. um, and, and do some homework on the, the department and sort of see which research areas are being represented and, and try to fit in as best you can. But really, they're just looking for a good candidate yeah. like 90% of the time. Yeah, I think that that's spot on. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think if they find the right candidate, a lot of requirements can be written in the description and can be overlooked because they're going to say, but yeah. this is the right candidate. What do we have to do to get him or her? And and so yeah. I think you're right. If, if you can be the right candidate, that's that's the trick. But but that's, I mean, especially to someone starting out, that feels, I think, wildly elusive of what is the right candidate. I think that's hard. Yeah, I think exactly. that's hard to determine, right? Until you've actually been on a search committee and sort of seen how much it matters or how little it matters, mm-hmm. um, that, that research area bit, it, it can be hard to determine. Um, I, I think the other kind of requirement that I've seen, at least on a lot of um, construction-related um, calls uh, for, for faculty positions, uh, has been uh, industry experience requirement. Mm. So I've seen, I know on ours, we usually write you know five years of, of industry experience. Um, and that's mainly because you know we want uh, faculty to come in and they have you know some practical you know stories that they can tell about mm-hmm, jobs that sure. they worked on and um, feel that it makes their teaching better and makes the research better if they've you know worked as a project manager worked as a construction manager for for five years now I can't say we always hire people that have five years of experience if you have four it's fine like right. it's you know but I think they look for some level of industry experience at least in our program yeah that makes sense we certainly do too but um I don't know. I don't know if you ever feel this way. Sometimes looking at the descriptions, it's like we want a researcher who's got thirty publications and thirty years of experience and a PE <laughs> yeah. and a PhD, but also who is studying something new and emerging. And also, my point being, you know, we're kind of searching for a unicorn out there, just just the the right. sort of person that doesn't ex- doesn't exist. So, I I see exactly what you're talking about, and you're right to bring those up. But I think we still will bend on a lot of those rules when we get the feeling sure. it's the right candidate. 
So maybe this would be a good kind of uh, uh, entry point into talking about the specifics of what goes in here. I mean, the, the concept of our podcast is we're celebrating failure. So I'll, I'll introduce one of mine where I really um, kind of fell flat on my face uh, when I was first applying. I, uh, you know, starting out uh, when I was doing my PhD, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then as time went on, I kind of said, well, you know, we'll try this academic thing, see if, see if it works. And so I assembled my documents and submitted to a couple of universities. Um, and I eventually, I, I don't know how the news got back, but somehow, you know, my, my advisor from her, heard from someone of kind of how, uh, uh, how I was doing and what I had created. And uh, we kind of had a sit-down meeting, and I remember I, I got the message. He probably said it nicer than this, but but I basically got the message of, if you ever want to work in academia, you need to completely change what you have submitted in terms of your vision. <laughs> oh my God. And right, which is of course just like, wow. oh, my whole world is crashing. But but he was right, and 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 he said it way more diplomatically and appropriately. I'm 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 saying it to more reflect on how it, it feels like to hear those things. Um, but he was right. What I did wrong, and I know now, is. I was in the depths of doing a PhD, which if you were thinking of a faculty position, that's at least possible that that's exactly the spot you're in. And your whole sort of professional life anyway revolves around get this thing produced and publish and get my data and analyze the data and make sure I write in a defensible manner. And I'm doing all this work so I can be doctor so-and-so. And before you have that degree, that feels like such a huge milestone. Uh, and it still is a milestone, by the way. So if you're going through it, that's a great milestone. But but it's just a milestone. It's not, it's not the end all of your achievements in life. Um, but I was so focused on this degree that I think a lot of um, the vision that I presented in my documents was so focused on I did this PhD and this PhD is going to enable me to do all of these other sort of um, tangential studies related pretty much to my same topic. Um, And I think the problem with it was it, it didn't really illustrate a lot of breadth that I could be flexible and have a chance at starting a new vision if everything that you know, was related to my PhD didn't just happen to work out, right? I didn't have a lot of backup plans or other strategies or ways of um, funding this work or even targeting funding. All I had was kind of, I'm working really hard on this PhD. Do you think I'm working hard enough? I hope this is hard enough. I hope I'm smart enough. I hope I lived up. You know, it it was very much Mm -hmm. about like, uh, here's what I've done in the past, and I'm going to just do more of that in the future without much detail on it. What I changed to, and what I think a lot of my suggestions as we talk about specific deliverables will be, is I think I should have focused a lot less on the dissertation because all applicants who even have a chance at these positions will have a dissertation, and focus more on what am I going to do in the future, right? If you give me this position, what am I going to do? What can you expect that I will develop, provide, generate for your university? What, What am I going to do moving forward? Um, and maybe that sounds obvious to listeners that I should have done that, but it wasn't obvious to me. And so I, I definitely um, got a number of thanks, but no thanks is without a phone call, without any subsequent steps, because my application was just, here's all about my PhD. Um, and I, I'm bringing this up because uh, without mentioning names for obvious reasons, I've been on you know various searches and sometimes you will see that come in from other individuals and so i think i'm at least not the only one that felt that falls into this trap sometimes so that's my overarching feedback i'll provide as we talk about specifics any lessons learned on your end uh boy i think i think that's pretty good i mean that's that's a lesson that i think everyone can can learn because the 
and I think the lesson there is don't sound like a graduate student yeah. during the application process, mm-hmm. right? Because that's, um, you're supposed to be moving beyond that. You're supposed to be transitioning to where, okay, now you're, you know, a subject matter expert in this field and, and you're, you're supposed to be looking forward, right, rather than backward. Um, and so I, you probably came off a little bit as, as a graduate student. Yeah, um, I'm sure. In, in the weeds, right? Um, so I, I think I maybe did better at that. Um, I wasn't as, I think, cause I, I proofread it a lot and then sat down, you know, with my advisor before even sending it out to make sure that I was, you know, close, um, to where, it, where it needed to be. I think my, my biggest, um, challenge was more in the application process where, you know, I was maybe very selective in, um, universities that, that I applied to hmm. in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't know you know, what they were looking for. So I was really looking for ones that I thought were a close fit to my research. Like I, I didn't do what I just told everyone to do you know, a couple minutes ago, which was sort of ignore the research area and just apply wherever you um, think you might be a good fit. Um, and so, I, you know, I didn't really cast as large a net as maybe um, I, I would recommend most people do now. Mm. Um, and so I don't want to say that it like limited my options, like as I'm still very happy with how everything turned out. Um, and it obviously worked out for me, um, but very could very easily could have gone another direction, right? And I could have um, had a a very unsuccessful time on the academic job search. Yeah, right. So I, I think that you really do need to, you know, apply anywhere where you're eligible and qualified. Like maybe can can we agree with this? Maybe slight stipulation though that you would at least consider if there's a place that you know, even if they gave you an offer, there's no way you'd go there because the location's sure. terrible or sure. the the whatever. We all have our own little. It's too far from family or whatever. I wouldn't do that. I think that is probably unwise. But anywhere that you're potentially open to, I think is that's probably a wise strategy. But and, and here's the caveat. I mean and. This is sort of unsaid. We didn't really mention it yet, but you know, academic jobs—they don't come around every year. Yeah, right. At every at every university, right. right? Like each university might be hiring every only once every five years or something, depending on you know who who they have and who they have retiring and, and you know their, their cycle you know, internally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, as choosy as you know you probably want to be, you may not have every option, every academic cycle, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and so I think that, yeah, it'd be nice to say, okay, I have this list of you know, requirements for all these universities that I want to work at. It has to be in you know, a sunny area and it has to be, it'd be X, do have X number of faculty. And so you can have all these requirements, but ultimately it, it sort of comes down to what's available at the time. And if, if you're serious about academia, you either um, you know, have be are choosy, but you accept the risk of perhaps there's a you miss that academic cycle, that hiring cycle, and you end up doing a postdoc for a year, um, or you you do widen the net and you know accept a position that may not be your first choice, but you know it, it's a it gets you on the track mm-hmm. uh, to be an academic. So, so let's know, assume that's unpopular then. advice. What's that? <laughs> That's probably unpopular advice, but no, I don't think. I think that I, I think that's very practical. I think I mean, you have to be real about it. Yeah, I, I think I think that is very practical, and and I certainly didn't mean to suggest that people shouldn't um, cast a wide net. You, you're right on. I I just think you can also, 
if you apply to places and, and get offers and sort of are just using an offer to to leverage against the university you really want to right. go to that, that i agree that, with. that also cheating. can kind of get you a little bit of a name like so you, you yeah. don't really i don't like that do. and and don't apply to some place that you have zero interest that's in. what yeah I and mean, that's i agree with that like yeah. if you you know have zero interest in that school definitely don't apply there yeah. but you know all the ones where you're eligible and you're qualified for and you could see yourself working at you know definitely toss an application their way because yeah. you just you never know you know what's going to happen so let's assume that uh, you've found a position or two you're interested in. Let's talk through some of the strategy for each of the different components that go into it. Um, maybe we can start with kind of what, what might be the easiest ones to do. I mean, I, I'm assuming for most of our listeners, if they're in grad school or at least even thinking about grad school, they probably know what a CV is. So curriculum vitae, in terms of um, con- uh, compiling all of your achievements, you're going to want to have that developed and updated. Um, in most cases, I'm guessing most of our listeners already have one. Um, but if you're thinking about an academic position and you still don't know which one you want to go to, that's an easy thing to say. Update that right now because you know you're going to need that at some point. Um, any tips or suggestions for the CV for um, what you submit for the application, Brian? Um, just that. Just make sure you know what a CV format looks like. Okay, mm-hmm. it, it's not a it's not a resume. Um, so there's a certain sort of sequence and categories that you have to have on there that are, you know, different, obviously from, from a resume. So, um, keeping it organized I mean, the same kind of rules tend to apply though. Like you need white space. It needs to be easy to find things. Um, but it's, it's meant to be long. So going two to three pages or whatever is, is perfectly fine. Yeah. I'll add one little nuance to there, and this is more for grad students who might be building up their, you know, portfolios worth of of accolades. Um, If you want to do research, and the university you're looking to expects you to do research, so that's part of the tenure decision there, you will need to list publications on your CV. Uh, If your field is like ours, which I know not all are, not all of them are, but if yours is like ours, uh, we tend to weight journal papers higher than conference papers. If that is the case for your field, I suggest separating your publications into journal and conference publications, and I would also list very clearly what the status of publications are. I know for some grad students, there is this feeling of, oh, I don't have enough there. I've, I've only got one published, but I have three more submitted. That's okay to list them, but make sure you're clear about they are in submission not published. Um, I, I think it is, at least from the committees I've been on, we've, we totally get the grad student life. So it's okay if you haven't had every one of your dissertation papers published. But if it's unclear and you make it look like, oh, this one's published and we search for it and can't find it, that's not a good look. So I would just be transparent um, and try to separate your content by journal papers and conference papers, because I think that actually adds more clarity and doesn't it doesn't give a reviewer the chance uh, to to misinterpret that you're trying to exaggerate your numbers. So I would be clear on those. I think that's good. Um, the other thing, maybe you, you probably want to add that, you know, I, I wouldn't do now because I, I have um, you know other funding listed. But you know, if you assisted in the preparation of anyone's yeah. you know grants or anything, you know, write that on there. Sure. Um, so if you you know worked with your advisor on an NSF proposal that was eventually funded or whatever. Um, you know, write that on there because, uh, again, the search committee is trying to assess uh, whether you are ready to move beyond being a graduate student. And part of that means 
um, that you're capable of of writing proposals and you know what one looks like um, and so that is something to put on that's an achievement and you should put it on your cv when you're when you're looking for a position yeah, i completely agree I, I would even say even if it wasn't funded you could still put something yeah, on there sure. i mean either either way that experience is good I, I would kind of make the same comment then with teaching too if you've been a ta great if you've been a grader great but i would put more specifics about what did you do in that role mm -hmm. because being a ta because your faculty member happened to have a ta position and he or she let you be a ta Okay, that, that's a little bit helpful, but if you designed a new project for a course, that says a little bit more about um, your experience that you could bring with you. Uh, so I would suggest put a bullet point or two. It doesn't have to be long. In fact, I wouldn't make it too long in there. You've got a teaching statement for that. Um, but I would at least put something that gets to what about this, if anything, um, gave you some kind of expertise that you might be able to bring with you. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, so while we're on this, all right, one more thing sure, for the yeah. CV. Uh, so um, what I found to be pretty effective on the education side, right, rather than just listing, you know, here's my PhD and here's the year I completed it, um, was sort of list your dissertation title mm -hmm. um, up near where you talk about your PhD um, in the education section and maybe just provide like a sentence or two there that talks about the main findings of, of what you did. Um, and then you could do the same thing for like your masters as well. Again, it just sort of brings the, to the forefront, especially for again, new, new PhDs, newly minted PhDs that are looking for a, a faculty position. It just brings to the forefront again and emphasizes what you, what you recently did as, as your dissertation. Obviously you would take it off once you become a faculty and, and you have more work that speaks. Uh, but putting that up there, that's probably, you know, one of your, your biggest accomplishments, mm -hmm. right. As a PhD student. Um, and it's, it's one of your biggest publications. Yeah. Right. Good point. So, so that's the CV, right? So you put that together. Um, I, I, I'm sort of moving quicker through this one. I feel like that other than maybe the couple of suggestions we mentioned, I feel mm -hmm. like that did not give me as much anxiety when I was submitting because we had no. just had CVs. Um, let's talk cover letter, teaching, and research statements, because I suspect these are the most common and maybe the biggest uh, differentiators. So um, cover letter, that's where I would put in there, um, you know, kind of your reason for applying, what your, your vision in a nutshell may be. Uh, I've found at least, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Brian, but mm -hmm. I've found that we actually read the cover letter, like not just we skim over it, okay, let's get to the CV, we actually read the cover letter. So I'm very interested in seeing what a person writes in there uh, in terms of either why they're applying or what the um, why they feel that their vision aligns with something we wrote in the um, job description we were seeking out in terms of the types of candidates we were looking for. Um, so that's something that I've found we really do actually use. Have you seen the same thing from the searches you've been involved in? Uh, yes. So we, we definitely, definitely read the, the cover letter. Um, I, and because of that, right, I think that the ones that come off stronger when I'm reading that cover letter are ones that have mastered the ability to be brief, yep. but still convey, you know, the information that they need to convey. Yeah. So like brevity here is, is really important because if they don't read anything else, then, you know, the, the read your cover letter and you need to in, you know, a page, maybe a page and a half. I mean, I don't, I don't like reading three page cover letters. I, know. I like, like keeping I, to a page, like give me a page, page and a half at most. And, you know, tell me, 
you know, you're making the case for yourself. So this is the marketing bit of it. This, the letter is where you're selling yourself. You're telling the search committee why uh, they should hire you, what you bring, um, what, the, what value you're going to bring to the department, both in terms of teaching and research and service. And you touch on all three of those um, sort of aspects because that's what they're going to assess you on in tenure. So mm -hmm. they want to see that you're going to hit the ground running. Again, this is one of those things where you do not want to sound like a graduate student. Yeah. You want to really talk yourself up. I know graduate students don't like doing that. They are very conservative about their work usually, um, and they're maybe insecure about some of the things that they did. The cover letter is not the time to let that show. Hmm. That's so interesting you, you say it that way because I feel like as I was going through it, I had insecurity, but it, it manifested very differently. Like I think my initial cover letters had confidence, but when defining what I brought to the university... Most of it was I'm bringing whatever the extension to my PhD was. Basically, it was still centric around what I did in the PhD. So it, even though I had the tone of confidence in there, I don't think it really had a viable shot because there was no there was no interest that I could succinctly say or or say it with brevity as you're as you're discussing there that really described what I would do. So I think that is something that's super important beyond whatever you did for your dissertation, like. Yeah. What, what do you what do you want in I don't know I hate to give give a number of words but you know five words or less or something what what's the general topic area or thing you're gonna do that you anticipate um, becoming known for like what what is the general direction of work that you want to be known for um, I think brevity is important I also think as much as you can don't be too esoteric or too uh, sort of jargony about the way that you describe your field. You are going to have a bunch of really smart people who are faculty members reading the content you submit. But if you have something super nuanced that no one really understands, that may not land as positive. So, so you may want to still be able to write in a way that's at least understood to, let's say, someone you meet for coffee at a conference, right? If some general person yeah. you'd meet at a conference understands what you are describing as your work, perfect. You're, you're great. But if they don't, figure out what are the words to make them understand. I mean, I, you could, I mean, I think the cover letter is analogous to what we talked about a few weeks ago about like sort of the first page of a proposal, mm, Yeah. right? Like that's the same level of sort of refinement um, that you put into the first page of a proposal is kind of the same level that you need to put into the cover letter. Um, and again, making sure that it's succinct, I'll just reiterate that yeah. again, just because it's... Um, you don't want to go into too much detail, like you're saying, because you're going to lose people. Um, and, and you want to them to understand the importance of what it is that you do. Um, and it's really hard to do that when you've lost them, when you're into the minutia of, of what you did for your dissertation, yeah. or you're describing some experiment that you want to do next year, and you're in the weeds about it. Like they, That's not something to talk about in the cover letter. Yeah. I tend to think the cover letter is kind of a, who are you and why are you applying? Mm -hmm. And when I say, who are you, I don't, I don't mean who were you in terms of the PhD, but who who, who do you envision yourself uh, becoming? They're investing in you as right. a faculty member. Um, and then I, I tend to think it's also worthwhile to have a little bit of why are you applying. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I think most of the ones I've seen that are very strong have something with a level of specificity that explains here is a strength or 
a group of individuals that is a strength or some kind of attribute of the university that they recognize as a strength of the university or an opportunity within the university that is tailored to that institution where you can basically say, because of who I am and the vision I've defined for me and who you are, the, in- the institution I'm applying to, there is this opportunity there for, for synergy. I think if you can make a case that way, I think that makes for a pretty powerful, um, positive first impression. So I will say that that is, I'm, I'm more cynical than you are. So yeah. I would say that that is difficult to do without coming off as pandering. Oh, like, yeah. Well, that's why, it's, I mean, to me, I mean? it has to be specific. So so maybe maybe yeah. we should go on for a minute. Like, if someone just says something like, your university is revered as blah, 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 fill right. in the, the U.S. News and World Report rankings or something, that's not what I'm talking about. But I guess what I'm saying is if there is a specific center that you have that was recently awarded uh, and they're mm-hmm. doing this really innovative work that might relate to yours, if there is a specific set of uh, faculty members there, um, I don't know that I would get too specific about um, name dropping, but if there's a coalition or a, a, a some, some different universities have different terms, mm-hmm. but some kind of group of faculty that align with what you're interested, you might list that there. If there's a, a, a group at the university, not within the department you're targeting, but elsewhere in the university, but synergistically related to what you do, there's a really good educational research group there, and you think there's partnership for uh, research opportunities there. To me, those kind of comments I don't think come across as pandering because they do relate to the specifics of who you are. But I, I would back off my comment based on what you're saying, Brian, of if the best you can do is just give, here are rankings I found about right. the university, I, I wouldn't drop just that. Leave that's, you, yeah. Just leave it out. That's right, because that's not going to score you any points. No. No, in fact, it's going to score you negative points. Right, yeah. you're going to look of. at it and say, okay. It just feels yeah. cheap. That's, yeah. Right, yeah. So that's, so that's the cover letter, right? So we're re- any, other, any other words of wisdom or uh, uh, notes for what to do in a cover letter? Um, so if you are sort of reusing elements of that cover letter oh, be uh, for other, yeah, just be really <laughs> careful and just proofread it, okay? No one wants to get a letter and see that it's written to another university, okay, <laughs> or another person yeah. at, on the search committee. So... You know, please proofread your letters before you send them. Yeah. Um, and make sure it's going to the right people. Well, I'm laughing at this, by the way, because this happens all the time. <laughs> all, the time. all the time. I mean, in a, in a faculty position, you know, if let's actually pause and this is worth talking about so i i know for some grad students the idea of applying to a faculty position can seem daunting because you say well i'm you know one person and i've heard that a hundred people might apply for this faculty position so i can do the numbers that means i have a one percent chance of getting it it doesn't really i mean i get mathematically it means that but practically speaking it does not mean that because you don't have each person doesn't have an equal probability. Right, right. That's, that's, exactly. That's logic fails. Yeah, because you've got these 100 people submitting. Half of them have no PhD or have no interest in, in the domain they're targeting or some fundamental flaw that they don't meet the minimum requirements. Then there's 50 left. Of the 50... 10 of them wrote the wrong university or have a degree that is completely unrelated. They have a PhD, but completely unrelated to what we're targeting. Then of the 40 you've got left, you've got 10 of them have some typos in there. They, they address the right university, but it kind of looks sloppy, right? Then we've got 30, and of those 30, 15 or maybe 20 are going to get phone calls. So if you can do a good job in applying, it's not one in 100. It might be more like one in two, 
right? And I'm, I'm being maybe a little optimistic. Sometimes it might feel a little less than that. But you just have to have a good enough uh, submission that you get to a phone call. And then once you get to a phone call, you have to do well enough that you get to an in, uh, on-campus interview. Mm-hmm. And once you get there, you have to do good enough that you're the choice that gets the position. If you look at it in that sort of gated approach of, of you know getting through each each pass uh, passing stage here, I think that makes it a little less daunting. And so what you're talking about, Brian, of address it to the right university. Mm-hmm. Every search I've I've been on, there's at least been you know an that instance where you say, well, this one's yeah. this one didn't want to apply yep. here. Nope. Gone. Gone. It just gets it just gets written off yeah. right away. Yeah. So, all right. So that's the the cover letter. Let's yeah. talk maybe a teaching statement next, and then research. I think research might be our, our most in depth. So maybe we can talk teaching next. What have you? Sure. What would you suggest doing and not doing for the teaching statement? Uh. Okay. So yeah. So I wrote a really bad teaching statement uh, to begin with uh, because I didn't know. Like, because when you're a graduate student and you've you know taught, or maybe you've just been a TA for for a course. I don't know if you really even have a teaching philosophy that you yeah. could point to. I mean, you probably never thought of it. You but probably you never did, sat down and thought. You did teach, though, philosophy. right? Like you I actually, did. Yeah, okay, yes. You, I did, I but I just didn't know what to write. Yeah. So, you know, because I had never sat down and, and thought, yeah. you know, what really is my philosophy regarding teaching? Yeah, and that's a good point. I had never thought about it that way. I just came in and did my thing, and, you know, it seemed to be pretty effective. I mean, students called me kind of a jerk once, but... <laughs> I got over that kind of quickly. I mean, I don't know if they were wrong, but they didn't have to say it like that. But uh, and so, so so what more specifically then was wrong about the philosophy that you initially developed? You were saying it was maybe a little challenging. I don't think it was a consistent philosophy. Like so, when I when I when I say that, it was just more like, you know, here's what I like about teaching, and um, you know, I find teaching very fulfilling, and it was sort of those sort of general statements mm, that don't yeah. really mean anything, but I thought that was what you were supposed to say, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if there's a better way of saying that, but it, it wasn't really a consistent philosophy just because I'd never thought of it like that before. Yeah. I, I had some of that in mind too. I, I don't know if it was exactly the same version of what you're describing, but the same underlying problem. Like I, I remember I would write something like, you know, I believe teaching is both an art and a science. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, oh, God, that's so cringy. Like, that's just, that's <laughs> stupid. You know, and, and it's, it's I've seen others like that um, where, you know, people talk about, you know, I believe that learning needs to be an active process. The days mm-hmm. of the lecturer standing in the front of the room and just mm-hmm. presenting their knowledge to a group of students willing to, to listen and learn from that uh, uh, knowledge alone or that lecture alone are, are long gone. It's not that those statements are untrue. So I want to just unpack this for the reader. You get yeah. this, Brian, but I'm saying this for yeah. the listener. It's not that those are untrue, but you are communicating to a very specific panel of other faculty members who have also sat in the webinars about the benefits of active yeah. learning. Like, they already know. You don't need to convince them of that. Yeah. And and much like what you're saying, Brian, my first couple, I think I wasted space communicating something they already need they already knew yeah and the stuff of basically if we gave you the position what would you do i didn't answer because i ran out of space yeah which maybe maybe even leads to a next point of a suggested do or a thing that i would recommend you do i would talk a little bit in there when you talk about your philosophy what does that mean in a more externally observable sense so if you were to submit this teaching statement, your philosophy is um, active learning or your philosophy is um, excellence through inclusion or your philosophy, whatever the thing is that's guiding um, your vision that you've got, 
What is it that you will do and how will that somehow enrich the, the learning environment for the students at this university? I think that's something that to me, um, at least when I've been on committees, I have very much appreciated because I can I can put a face on it. I can see what that means. Oh, they've yeah. got this idea for this virtual field trip. and the, Oh, and their research says they do. Okay, so this is a line. So this lines up really yeah. well. This is a cool idea. We don't have this. this you know, and it feels like I can believe it. In others, when it's generic, I... I I don't know how to put a face on a generic plan. Yeah, I mean, so the way that I sort of fixed mine, and I think it gets to exactly what you're saying, right? It's sort of like you're, it's the rule of, you know, you're making a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's show, don't tell. Mm, yeah. So you, you don't tell everyone what you're doing or what you've done, right? Show them via an example. Yeah. And so the more specific you can be, sort of the better. And so I ended up, I don't know if you've ever read my no, I don't original teaching do. statement. So um, what I did was I basically made the first half of it a story, like one of my first teaching experiences in the classroom. And I basically wrote it like it was a creative writing. It was like prose. It was a story. There were quotes from students. There were quotes from me. And it was sort of this, I think it was engaging. Hmm. Um, but I've never it was like seen sort of an like engaging that. story. I know. So somebody, I wrote it yeah. half page or so. First half page was just this story. And, and then everything I wrote down below was sort of referential to that story yeah. because I was using that story to illustrate things that I did and how I approached teaching. And it was, I think, much more effective because it was more of that show and not telling. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to tell you that I engaged the students. I, I showed you in the example um, with, with how I did that. And um, I recently with a graduate student had them um, do a, a teaching statement that was kind of similar. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it also worked for them where they, they told a story um, and it was, it's effective just to show how you operate. Yeah. I'm going to go, uh, maybe speak beyond my expertise here. Cause I'm still very much learning this whole academic life. I think that is a very creative idea. I think that will separate your statement from others I don't know that that will always be received positively based especially on who is on the group that's reviewing them cuz I could see some saying what is this this is a this isn't this isn't a philosophy this is just a story I could also see others being like this is brilliant this is this is the person that I'm super intrigued by um, I could sort of see that going either way obviously it worked out in your case so that's that's excellent All right so I'll compromise with you so if you're not courageous enough to go the story route then you definitely still need to weave in examples, yes. like specific examples, not say I like to do, you know, active learning. I like to do flipped classes. Yeah. Don't just say that, right? Describe you, the process of you using a flipped class and what are the outcomes of it? What do, what do students think of it? How, yeah. why are they more engaged that way than, than traditional methods? I'm a hundred percent with you on the examples. I, I would also even say, so especially if you're a grad student, you may not have the, you know, the, the benefit of having 10 years of teaching experience. You might've been a TA twice, you know, or, or supported a faculty member, not even as a TA capacity, but just cause you had an interest and they let mm-hmm. you help with designing uh, an in-class activity or a project or a whatever, right? That's not as much teaching experience as you'd like, but that's something you've done something. I would talk about that, and if it did not go swimmingly, talk about how and why you would do it better, right? What what about that would you change and improve? I sometimes think a lot of um, uh, teaching statements from people who haven't taught a lot will talk about what they've done 
and how they've already mastered teaching in their one semester of TA position. <laughs> and there again, kind of like we said, the platitudinal comments at the beginning won't, the committee won't buy them, or they don't need, they're, they're already convinced that lecture-based learning is not great. They also won't really buy into this idea of, oh, you've, you've been a TA for one semester. Oh, and you've perfected teaching. Wonderful. He's a perfect teacher we've got here. Right? I mean, it's sort of like it's okay to be a little bit um, human here and recognize, yeah, we're, mm-hmm. we're not perfect. And here's what I would have done better. I actually think that can be received um, fairly positively if you, if you word it right. Yeah, I agree. But either, any way you cut it, right, you have to, um, you know, some way convey how you approach teaching and then i I don't know did you this is one of those sections where i've heard conflicting things on it and i've seen conflicting i know where you're going already some summarize like classes that they could teach like within within that program and i didn't really do that i talked about sort of topics that i could uh, teach but i didn't go to the level of here's the specific class number course name that i could teach and here's why and here's what i would do with it I, i didn't do that so i i did but i've heard the same exactly what you're saying i you're spot on i mean there's absolutely divergent opinions on it i don't know that i was right to do it but i I did list courses um if you do list courses that are there a couple of quick comments to make i wouldn't be um super laser focused on one course because there's a chance that someone who's already teaching that course does not intend to give it up and they don't Mm -hmm. they'll they'll see it as a stay off my lawn kind of thing you know Mm -hmm. one of those things um and so i would would avoid that but i think if you're going to say courses soften it by saying like there are a number of courses at xyz university i'm I'm interested in teaching some uh of the of my uh, you know most closely related could include these List a couple. Mm-hmm. Keep it as a soft it's sort of comment in what you teach. But the other thing I would say, make sure you actually proofread what are their courses. Um, <laughs> much in the same way that the cover letter should not yeah. be inadvertently addressed to a different university, you don't want to drop in the wrong sort of course naming nomenclature from you know my university to Brian's right. or vice versa. Because even though you'd say, well, it's just a couple letters and some numbers, I know the letters and numbers for mine, yeah. you know the letters and numbers for yours, we're gonna, we're gonna smell a phony in there. So if something's yeah. wrong, um, we'll notice it. So get those right. Yeah. I would also, I mean, the other thing that I think can separate you, um, especially if you don't have a ton of teaching experience and it's, um, something you want to strengthen your teaching uh, uh, content, I would talk, if applicable, how can your research support your teaching, right? So that could be something like, I'm going to involve my students in data collection activities, and this is how it will support my research, but also how it enriches the students because they're going to use some new or emerging technology, or they're going to do a project where I simulate the roles where they're going to be in different types of delivery methods that may be different than what they've seen in their companies, or that my point is, if you can somehow tie something where you do have more expertise, your research, to what you're going to do in teaching, I think that can also be um, an effective strategy, especially if you don't have a lot of teaching experience to rely on. I think that's a great idea. I mean, I never thought to do that like when I was applying, but um, yeah, I think that's awesome. If you can bring in some and make it sort of complete the circle, yeah. so to speak. So research to teaching, teaching to research. Um, I, I think that's an awesome link if you can do it. Well, and I I also talked, which this is a little more directly related. I talked in mine about grad courses that I would look to develop. Did you present that in yours? 
Um, again, I, I was more topically, right? Okay. So I said, you know, I, I would be able to, to teach the um, sort of the core construction management courses of scheduling, estimating, project mm-hmm. management, whatever. And then I said, and I would be, um, you know, excited to develop new graduate courses in the area of project delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I sort of just topically alluded to it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like those are pretty good, though, uh, do's and don'ts on the teaching side of things there in terms of of strategies. Have a philosophy, but have some examples. Have some specifics behind what that philosophy means in practice for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously you're hearing different opinions on do you get specific (laughs) in terms of what courses you teach. I don't think it's a bad idea, but I would. I think Brian's right in saying you can potentially step on toes if you do that. So if you list some courses, just be tactful in how strongly you describe yeah. your interest in wanting to teach those. The worst thing that could happen is a person is on the search committee that teaches that class that you list, and they love it, yep. and they've been teaching it for 20 years, <laughs> and they have no intention of giving it up, right. and you come in and say, oh, I'm going to teach this class. Yeah. And that person's like, oh, the hell you are. And then your application goes to the bottom of the pile. Isn't it funny? Because we've got uh, all these bright academics that we all look up to and we're like, oh, they're so smart. They're so great. But we're also, which is true, but we're also, also kind of just dumb animals in a sense too. And we're just, oh, I feel threatened. I need to per- per- block this person yeah. from getting the position. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of, we're still also predictable in that way that uh, if we feel threatened, we're going to do, yeah, it's not going to be. Academia can be kind of petty sometimes yeah. because the stakes are so low. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you've got your, your CV looks perfect. Your cover letter, you've got some thought behind that. You've got a teaching statement. Let's talk research because I think for a lot of you, especially if you want to go to an institution that expects research, um, this one I think might be the most important of the documents. Am I right on that or am I overshooting it? Um, I think it is. I think this yeah. is what, what most will look at. Yeah. Well, both of our universities, though, expect a lot for research, too, which maybe we're biased. If, if you had gone to more of a, a teaching-centric university, perhaps that doesn't hold. But, and, and they may not have even asked about research, to be honest. I mean, if you go to a, a very teaching-centric university, they may not even really ask you for a, a research statement. Yeah. So It's true. So so they could, yeah. And, and, and so the, the differences may, may vary by university. I've seen a lot that are expecting research statements, even if they are somewhat teaching focused, because I think there is an understanding from a business model perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of universities want to do more research, even if they have not traditionally done it. It's very much that they're trying to because it's more revenue that comes in. Um, but yeah. sometimes that can be very challenging to do if there's not an existing infrastructure. Doesn't mean it can't That's, be done, but yeah. just kind of know what you're signing up for there. It's a different discussion, actually. Yeah, that That's, probably is a different discussion. Yeah. So. Yeah. so let's talk, let's assume that uh, that there's a need for a research statement. So we'll assume that research is something that the university values. Um, any initial thoughts and kind of do's or don'ts there for, for how to structure a research statement? Um, I mean, I, I'll just speak from my own experience where I, I think my structure was, was pretty effective. So there was sort of a, an intro paragraph that just broadly oriented people to sort of the problems, the types of problems that I address and um, what it is that I do. And then I um, sort of split it up by time. So I did like a past research section, um, which covered like my master's work. And then it was a current research which was sort of my PhD, which I was finishing at the time. 
and then there was a future research section where I outlined some ideas for um, the next project and the next project, sort of outlining a research plan, things that I could hit the ground running with um, if I were to start a, as a new faculty. Mm-hmm. That's um, mo- and I, I think yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I did too on mine. I, I think yeah. I, I laid it out wrong though initially. I probably had 40%, 40%, 20% in terms of past, mm. present, and future. And I think now I would do more like maybe, well, n- now that we've been teaching for a little while, I think I probably would still put in 25% or 20% past, but I would focus a whole lot on, on more of future. Um, I, right. I think that that probably is just a lot more of interest to the university. I agree. I, I agree. I think the the key though for you know, new PhD students is to to tell the story. Like yeah. there's definitely a story to it of how your past research ties into your current research yeah. and how your current research will enable future research. So there's definitely a flow that you have to create, and it needs to be sort of logical. Even if you worked on things that seem are seemingly not related, yeah, you have to find some links there to smooth over those transitions so it doesn't look like you just touched everything randomly which which that by the way at least as a listener to me sounds very much like what you had advised in one of the earlier podcasts about can you summarize your idea for a proposal yep. in i think you said one page or 60 seconds or some, some yep. succinct amount it's kind of similar here of can you get to what is that underlying tie that that bridges all of these concepts together and i think that is really important I know, you know, what I do relates to new and emerging technologies, and I will frequently see uh, new faculty or grad students who are kind of still figuring out how to make their message. They will define uh, the thread of basically, I wanted to do this with technology because no one had done it before. And I'm not saying that that's dumb. Like, that makes sense to me why someone would do that. But but to be, if we put on kind of our cynical hat for a moment and we go back to, we've got a hundred applicants and I got to, you know, whittle this down to, to, you know, one person who eventually gets the position, there's kind of deciding who doesn't get the position. So I would think, like, what what's a way that they could be against that message? And for something like what I've just described there, you know, I'm, I'm looking at technology and I'm going to do this thing with technology because no one's done it. You know, the kind of snarky answer I, I, I have given to people when I'm describing the problem with this is we have not had a study that looks at integrated project delivery, a brand new contra- uh, contracting strategy that we implement where we share risk and reward. We have not looked at a study that looks at that contracting method and the ways in which it can be benefited through the use of carrier pigeons. But that doesn't mean that we should be studying that, right? Like that's, that's obviously a silly idea for a study. Yeah. And so where I'm going with this is in that thread, you talked about the narrative or the story or the, the guidance through kind of the where are you going. I tend to think it's helpful to have some linear topic. If you're going to look at something like technology, I would highly encourage you to have what is the problem that you're going to solve, right? If, if we say no to your research or no to your ideas or no to whatever the concepts are uh, that you're, you're generating, how, how are we still in trouble or how are we still going to be inefficient or unsafe mm-hmm. or prone to doing rework or falling behind schedule or over budget? What are the, the mm-hmm. ways in which we are hurt by not doing this? I think that's important for the tech side. Do you have any on the more of the, the organizational side of either strategies you've seen be effective or ineffective that might offer value to a listener? Uh, yeah, this is always, I mean, it's always challenging for our field in particular because, you know, we're typically talking about, I don't know, like process efficiency or, you know, making projects slightly more profitable, mm-hmm. like, or maybe a little bit more sustainable. We're not 
like curing cancer or anything. Yeah, right. What we're doing. So it's always a little challenging because our problems are maybe a smaller scale. Um, but, you know, typically it's the people that are successful that come in uh, and tell the story, you know, to our department are, you know, ones that focus on the you know productivity challenges and the efficiency, um, lack of efficiency and the waste that's created in the construction process and how, you know, their work is, it will reduce that and make construction more cost effective in the long run, um, will solve maybe labor shortages. So if you're touching on, you know, those kind of issues in our field, it, it tends to set up, you know, what you're doing pretty nicely. Yeah. Um, because they're relevant issues. Everyone can look at it and say, yeah, construction's inefficient. All our projects are over budget or, or late. I mean, not all of them, but good good percentage of them are in some uh, way or another. Yeah. Um, and so ways that you can reduce or, or limit those is, is definitely preferable. Um, but so I have a question for you, though, yeah. because so you said emerging technologies. It, did you write that in your did you did you know that at the time? I think what I wrote when I was in the job hunt mode, I think I said my area of interest is specifically studying mobile computing technologies because at the time we had already had iPhones for a handful of years. We were starting to see iPads becoming fairly common on on job sites. There were a number of just mobile tools that were coming out. And so my my pitch was to say I'm going to be the mobile um, the mobile IT person in construction, okay. um, which looking back on it was way broader than I ended up going. Yeah. Um, but, but I think at the time it it was it, it worked. I mean, I had some background at least I could justify something about that. I wouldn't do that now, but um, but yeah, that was my pitch. Yeah, I think I went in with something like, you know, team integration or something. Yeah. And so, I mean, now if you would ask me what I do, it would be you know collaborative project delivery. Yeah. But so it, it got refined, you know, over the over the years. Mm-hmm. But when you're first starting out, you just kind of, you know, pick something that you, you know, have a lot of knowledge of and, and run with it. Yeah, I think it might be important when you define what that couple of word descriptor is. Like we just gave examples of ours. I think it might be important that in your research statement, because that's what we're talking about, that mm-hmm. the examples you list align with that. So I had I talked past, present, and future. I would recommend people focus maybe most of their effort on future because I think that's the most exciting of the sections. I would Mm -hmm. list a couple studies there of what you would anticipate doing. And I think those studies should have some relevance to the topic you've described. If they're um, tangential but still kind of related but a little different, that might be okay. If something is way, way, way different from what you said was going to be your topic, I think that can work against you. So you may want to reword the topic. If you say, I'm the sustainability person, everything sustainable, this, low energy, this, and then I also want to study this thing um, on, you know, nanotechnology, and I never make the tie between nanotechnology Mm -hmm. and uh, sustainability, I think that's a little, that could look a little odd. So I would list some specific ideas of what is it you think you would do as a project. Um, I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts, but from my perspective, I like when there's some specificity there, not to the mm-hmm. level of here's a methodology I would implement, mm-hmm. but kind of a here's a research question I would address or an objective I would target or a, a, an aim I would, I would strive towards. And here's maybe a one sentence of what I could do to achieve this. Um, the other thing that I think can look really positive if it's not um, 
kind of phoned in, if it's a if it's a if it's a very genuine effort you put in, if there are individuals at this university or centers at the university or other departments at the university or resources that directly support you in doing these projects that you've laid out, and you say this would be supported by this very specific um, individual or group or what have you at the university, I think that can be well received because what what the university will hear is okay this individual who's applying has an idea and also they recognize what we do at this university uh, where we may be able to you know expand our own impact by by working with this individual i think that can be a really powerful strategy i think it's hard to do because it takes more work than just writing a generic statement but i tend to think that's a lot more powerful what did you do with yours so yeah so i i came up with i think it was either two or maybe three and I had to cut one down to two just for space. So I came up with like two future study ideas and you know, each one had a, had a bullet point. And so I came up with a little sort of title for it. And then I just led with the research question. Like I put it in italics right after the title of what the future study would be. Um, and you need to, I mean, I tried to make the research question sort of Mm self-explanatory where it was just to draw you in. Right. It was just to say, Oh yeah, that's a cool question. Like, no jargon, just plain English. Would you know what? How how do we solve this problem? Or um, you know, what's the relationship between X and Y? Mm-hmm. Right. Just be very um, like specific, but get people in, engaged with it. Yeah. Um, and then I put like a couple sentences of sort of rationale, like why this was an important thing to look at, and maybe a sentence on you know what what good would come out of it. Like if we could answer this question, here's what would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, or here's some positive uh, outcome. And then um, I, I didn't list specific people. I think that's a, a good idea if you can avoid the pandering yeah, thing. You can't. Yeah, you, you don't want to drag people in yes. who don't want to work with you. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so be careful about putting people who are on the search committee on your thing because they may not be interested in working with you. Yeah. I guess where I was going, maybe to, maybe to clarify this, if you give something specific and I say something like Dr. Franz was awarded this uh, project from NSF and he's looking to do this kind of thing, a very logical extension to his work would be doing this thing that I propose. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a little bit harder to deny, assuming, assuming that there actually could be a link there. Because I don't hate that. Yeah, I mean, then you're basically saying, I've actually done my homework. I know what you do, as opposed to just, oh, Dr. Franz, you're the best, you know? <laughs> or if you say, I'm going to work with Dr. Franz on this project. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. And I'd be like, uh, I don't have time no, for you. Yeah, no, right. you're not. <laughs> yeah. The hell you are. Yeah. <laughs> the fun- so, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, I just don't call, you have to be soft about it. Yeah. So I like the way that you phrased it of, um, you know, so-and-so just completed a recent project. This would be a nice natural extension to it, and I would be open to working with uh, them as a collaborator, yeah. right? Yeah. But don't say they will work with me. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Oh. Especially, too, because, I mean, on a more um, uh, logistical level, I could say all these things about how great Dr. Franz is and how I want to work with Dr. Franz. Little do I know, Dr. Franz is applying elsewhere. By the time my, my application gets read, he's <laughs> already true. announced I'm know. leaving. My point, or, or whatever, or you got you, you didn't you didn't get promoted and, and mm-hmm. they're kicking, whatever the, the reason may be, my point is don't put all your eggs in one basket for that either because mm-hmm. that, that could fall yeah. through, but yeah. So the other thing I would say at the end of each of those um, would be to list a potential funding source mm-hmm. for what that project is. So you could say, 
you know, this idea aligns with, um, you know, NSF's program for whatever civil engineering, or, you know, so list the specific program um, and the, the funding agency that it would be a good fit for. I mean, that shows that you are familiar uh, with the different programs and you know what kinds of uh, proposals get funded there. And y- you can, again, hit the ground running. And that's what this is all about. Yeah. They want to hire someone that on day one can start being a faculty member. They don't want to have to hold your hand for two years because there's no time for that on the tenure track. Yeah. They can't hold your hand for 10 years and teach you exactly how to do all this. They want you to come in and immediately start working on it. Yeah. Can I, I, I think, but I think you're a hundred percent. I'm with you. The one thing I might add to it, not, not to differentiate from what you said, but just mm-hmm. to add on to it, maybe run your ideas by your advisor or if your mm-hmm. advisor is not in the exact domain of where you're applying if you ever met someone at a conference who is in that domain run those ideas by someone that you know maybe you trust that you know is not going to that that would want to help you genuinely mm-hmm. i bring this up to say i think when i was starting out i did not have a good sense of what what ideas can i take where and looking mm-hmm. back at what i submitted some of the the claims i made about oh i can go here for that now, you know, with the experiences I've had, I'd say there's no way they would have funded yeah, no chance, no chance. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, it may not be a bad idea just to get um, back up on it. Your advisor's probably a logical choice for this, but just kind of say, here's what I'm thinking of. Does this pass kind of your laugh test, so to speak? And you do need to be a little bit careful because some funding agencies don't openly solicit ideas. That they come up with here's what I want. Yeah. And then they collect proposals on it. And so if you say that you're going to go to one of those, you know, agencies that doesn't really just openly solicit proposals, yeah. that looks kind of bad. So that can kind of backfire on you. Yeah. Um, if someone in the committee knows that agency and knows that, yeah, you can't just randomly submit ideas yeah. to this. But that's, that's a good learning. I mean, just this whole process of where you can and can't go for, for funding, that's a good mm-hmm. learning experience as much as you can to absorb what you can while doing a PhD. Because I will say on my end, I felt like I, um, I actually, I, I was fortunate. My advisor involved, involved me and others in our group in the uh, proposal writing process. Mm-hmm. But I still felt when I was starting up, despite that experience, I still felt like just such a uh, a student, just an unprepared, you know, student yeah. learning what where I can and can't go. So I think the more yeah. you can learn about that, the stronger it'll be. What you're suggesting, I think, is excellent. Here's where I'd go, but but in the same way that you know, a compliment can come off as pandering or mm-hmm. tactical based on kind of uh, you know what what's in that comment. Your where to go for funding can come off as really prepared or really just clueless, clueless. right? Yeah. yeah. So so it's sort of like you want to avoid that. Yeah. Any other do's and don'ts you can think of in terms of the research statement that you make? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you just a formatting thing just because, again, I've read a lot of these. And so the, the ones that are easier to read. So, again, use white space. Yeah. Feel free to you know, all these things are digital now, like nothing's printed. So use color somewhere. Yeah. Like if you want to change the color of a heading or change the color of some word or, and bold it and italic, italicize it to make sure I read it. Like, that's great. Help, help me to read your document. Help, help, uh, help the search committee to actually uh, find what's important in that maybe two-page research statement. Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't do this when I was applying, but, but I think if I could go back and, you know, back in time and redo it, I might have actually added a figure. 
because I think this is something, mm-hmm. um, th- again, like all the other comments, this is do it well or don't do it. But if, if right. you're good with graphics and, and you have a, um, you know, a, a, an eye for this kind of thing of organi- organizing your uh, concepts graphically, I think that might have been a, a good idea to do to kind of organize. When I say mobile technologies, what does that mean? That sounds like a whole bunch yeah. of things. Here's what it means. There's visual technologies that includes this and this and this. I'm going to do these things with it. That includes head-mounted displays. That includes this and this and this. I'm going to do this. But that means computing devices. That means this and that, whatever yeah. the thing might be. Um, yep. And I think I didn't do that, but that that I think also could be well received if you do it very clearly. So yeah, so the the key point there is very clearly, yeah. and you have to be very selective of the document. Do not put in there a structural equation model from your dissertation. Yeah, no one will understand it. To show no one wants to see that. No one cares. Well, you care, but you know maybe some people care, but they don't want to see it there. Like that's not a good use of space. Well, because too, I mean, at that point, either they'll say, "I don't understand this. Per- this person must not know how to communicate to to anyone. They're going right. to struggle getting funding." Or worse yet, they're going to say, "I think I do understand it. I'm maybe <laughs> misunderstanding <wrong>. the context, <laughs> yeah. right? But I'm going to misunderstand the context and yeah. now makes your answer wrong, which makes you look like a fool. Either way, that doesn't help, yeah. right? Doesn't work. No. Like I, if you're going to do a visual, make it a, a simple yep. sort of positioning visual yep. where you show sort of where your work converges or exactly. maybe how you integrate education into your research or something that's fine yeah. but don't go with anything specific like with your work yeah that's yeah so you've got that i think uh if we're good on research statement last thing's having a couple uh, references i would make sure you've got a couple references uh in mind um when i was starting out initially i had mostly academic references so these would be um, faculty members I worked with closely, um, my advisors, I happen to have two advisors, I had co-advisors, mm-hmm. so both of them were very logical choices. Um, I think I may have listed one committee member even and other faculty I had in class, and I think I even listed like a project manager from, from industry, someone who I worked with um, mm-hmm. during uh, you know work experiences. Um, any suggestions on, on the, the um, people to list for the, the references? Um. I mean, definitely your advisors. Yeah. It's going to look weird if your advisor isn't on your reference list. Um, but then, you know, I I listed some people that I knew that weren't at our university, right? That I People that I had met at conferences, um, folks that we had worked with on a research project that I had done, mm-hmm. um, you know, during, during my PhD, who got to know my work because, you know, um, we had shared data and... Uh, work together on some of the analyses. Um, and so I, I felt like that was good to get sort of an outside uh, perspective, not just from your home university, which you know, may be construed as bias. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, it's, it, I think it's important to understand like where the references come in, right? Like, so when you submit your application, you are not submitting letters from your references at that point, mm-hmm. right? Most Most universities will recognize how, sort of annoying letters are to collect and get. Yeah. And so they won't even collect letters from your references until you're very far along in the process. Yeah. So they're not going to collect letters for a hundred applicants. They're going to collect letters for the five people that they invite to the uh, campus yeah. uh, interview. Yeah. So, um, you know, putting together a good list. Um, I, I think mine was helped by, you know, the, some of the external people, um, because, folks in the department that I was applying to knew that person. Yeah. 
right? And so a reference from them carried maybe a little bit more weight. I don't know, speculation. Do you, I mean, well, it, this is actually a perfect, tra- do you have, this is very speculation uh, based as well. I think it's safe to say both of us had very positive relationships with, with our advisors. But mm-hmm. what if we didn't? Like, what would you do then? If you, if you had a rough situation, you still graduated, still managed to get through, but we, we've all heard story. I mean, this kind of thing does happen from time to time. Do you still list them? Do you maybe just go to those other collaborators? What would you do in that situation? Oh man, I don't I don't even know if I have a good answer to that because again, it would be it would be red flags a little bit. Um, maybe in that case, I would list other people on your committee yeah. um, who are maybe you know more receptive to uh, to what you did. Obviously, those those external collaborators are are still valid. Um, yeah, I have not been in that situation. I, I haven't either, and I feel very fortunate that I had a very positive relationship with, with my advisors, and still do, but but my point being, I don't. it was never a concern for me. I yeah. tend to think if I were to go through it now, and I might be wrong, I don't think I would put them on if I thought it would lead to a negative letter. Um, and here's why I'm saying this. I think in the early stages, just to get to the point of a phone interview, I don't know that the references are, are examined that closely. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, what I might consider doing then is bringing it up at some later point if, if, they, if they discuss it as being a, a red flag of why, why was this the case? And I would have the explanation mm-hmm. being fairly well rehearsed. No, know your talking points because that, that could come up. So if that happened, um, I don't think it automatically means they won't like you or won't listen to you. But as you're saying, Brian, like that could be a bit of a red flag. So I would at least just be ready to explain what happened there. Why why would that person not be listed here? Because that is a little strange. I think that's a good compromise. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah uh, being able to yeah, have a very well-rehearsed explanation uh, ready. Because you know you're going to get that question. Yeah. like Because it, w- it would be uncommon. Yeah. So, Well, we just gave a whole bunch of uh, suggestions on what to do. I feel pretty good. I feel like that uh, if, if, if I would have had these suggestions, I think I wouldn't have had quite as many uh, uh, embarrassing fails. What do you think? Any <laughs> other uh, suggestions here? I think that's pretty good. I mean, the, the only suggestion I'll leave it with, just because it's, it's related to this part of the search, is, um, you know, it's going to go radio silent for a while yeah, after you point. submit your application. Yeah. You're going to hear like nothing for three months. Um, so don't like keep checking the calendar and you know spamming send receive trying to you know find that email um it it just will not come for at least three months and and no news truly is just no news it's not bad or good news right it's it's just it's because you're right it's just slow don't read into it like it's it's a process with the search committee and they're sorting through a lot of applications and doing sort of triage on them and deciding you know which ones they want to take forward yeah um, so don't read any much into it. Just be patient. Good feedback. Well, on that note, why don't we break there? We will pick up. So we basically have talked through today uh, what to do to get your, your content assembled to the point where you can submit your application. Next time when we talk about this topic, we're going to talk about kind of the phone interview process. And we'll probably have another one after that where we talk about the on-campus process and kind of do's and don'ts associated with that. Um, I actually think the timing of this may align with the academic calendar. So uh, for, yeah. for 
all of our listeners. That's probably a, a, a very ambitious statement. I should say to, to both of our listeners, <laughs> to anyone who might might be listening. Hopefully, this aligns with the uh, schedule so that maybe we can help you avoid some of the profits errors that we had made as we were going through it. So, as always, thanks for joining us. We will catch you on the next episode.